Whether on the boat, on the river, or in the woods, Yeti products are by our side. There are many innovative first-class companies in the outdoor market today, but none more so than Yeti. In 2006, they took the industry by storm when they produced their first roto-molded cooler that was reliable and built for the wild. 17 years later, with a multitude of new products, they continue to raise the bar and be the gold standard for all outdoor brands. We couldn't be more proud to have them as a Millhouse sponsor and a family member. Starting from a 90-year-old family recipe, Wickles are wickedly delicious pickles packed with garlic and peppers, a staple in our skiff and all shoreline lunches. Originating from Sim's grandmother's kitchen to a pantry near yours, from pickles, okra, relishes, and spreads, check them out to elevate all of your meals to the next level. Albert Panzoa is the son of Cuban parents that defected their home country as Castro was overthrowing the government in 1959. Similar to other friends of ours that have the same story, Albert quickly became one of the most respected and successful guides in the Florida Keys. He's always been guarded with his knowledge and he never pursued having his name engraved on the big tournament trophies. His fishing knowledge is profound and has been greatly expanded because of his commercial fishing prowess. Albert's story is a compelling one, and we hope you enjoy it. We broke everything. We broke lines. We broke hooks. We broke rods. We broke our minds. We broke marriages. We broke the whole thing. We uh, came up with the idea of going out that night and chasing girls, and whoever had the biggest pair of panties won the pot. I knocked another arrow and he turned around the other way and I shot him going through the other way. So I double lunged him both ways. But it was nothing for us to paddle an air mattress out into government cut. I got him on. All right, now we're going to teach him a lesson. I'm just an old guy that likes to fish. I'm not quitting yet. And he said, well, who the hell do you think you are, Sue App? And I said, that's exactly who I am. Life's journey to the grave should not be one arriving with a pretty, well-preserved body, but rather skid in broadside in a cloud of smoke, thoroughly torn out, thoroughly used up, proclaiming wildly, wow, what a ride. <laughs> There's something fishy going on here. It's interesting how, you know, a lot of Cubans, as you and your family, you know, have moved here, you know, left in 59 just before, you know, Castro took over. But Cubans love to fish. It's amazing. Wherever you go, Cubans are fishing. And they know how to get it done. They know how to get it done. They could do it with a hand line or a spinning rod. Yeah, the Cuban yo-yo. fly rod, yeah. you know. Well, uh, have you ever caught a big fish with a yo-yo? Yeah, I've caught big snappers and groupers and stuff like that, but I've never caught marlin or or wahoo or anything and like that. And some of those guys did oh, yeah. catch marlin with oh, a yeah. My with dad a, a yo -yo? used to wireline. I think they wireline a lot with their hands to catch wahoo in the wintertime. And uh, I know they caught a lot of big wahoo doing that. Um, but... Yeah, man. Because I, I, I remember Borski was trying to catch big tarpon with a Cuban yo-yo. <laughs> Man, huh? that'd be brutal. Wouldn't I think. it be fun? That, that would be crazy brutal. <laughs> I've got such bad shoulders. My arms would just leave my body. <laughs> um, tell me about your growing up in Cuba. Uh, well, you know. I, I was born here. Um, my dad my dad, and my mom, well, my mom left in 1959 from Cuba. My dad stayed behind. Th that's right. Right. And we had two little, dad had two girls that were born there, Irene and Georgina, uh, two, two of my sisters. So they moved, they left and they came to Miami. And um, my dad kind of stayed behind trying to keep things afloat, right. uh, business afloat that my grandfather had. They and what had, kind of business was it that? It was a, a Chrysler Corporation where they sold cars and it was pretty big. And uh, 
my grandfather had to leave. Uh, they were looking for him for some reason. Somebody said something bad about him, and he was worried about him getting caught up uh, with all the people that they were coming after at the beginning of the revolution. Right. You know, if you had money, you, you lost were it. suspect. Yeah. You know, you were suspect right away. But so, didn't you mention at some at one point he might have been working with the CIA yeah, or something? So, so what happened was when my mom came to Miami and my dad was there working, trying to keep things afloat, he was also working for the CIA and the Cubans that were fighting against Castro at the time. So he would smuggle out Cubans that were in trouble on the island on a boat. And he would meet the Americans, whoever was his contacts. Mm -hmm. He would take them out and hand them over to the Americans, whoever picking them up. And he would bring back ammunition. He would bring back ammunition on the boat. So the guerrillas would have them in Cuba, the people that were fighting against Castro. So he did that for, I think, 14 months or something like that till they finally, Castro and uh, whatever secret police they had, finally found out that they were doing this. And uh, they came after him one night, in the middle of the night, but he already had wind that they were looking for him. He ran down to where he kept his boat, him and another guy, and they ran out of the river. Uh, I don't know the name of the river. It was somewhere in Havana, and they got shot up. I mean, they shot, they 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 hit them up pretty good, but they didn't hurt the motors. I think it had two motors. The boat he was on, and he did came, anybody get hurt? Nobody got hurt. Just no, the boat had just holes the in boat it. got a little dinged up. They came out of Havana. And instead of him going straight south, he knew that they would be out there waiting for him. He turned and he went right up the coastline all the way to the western tip of Cuba and then cut across. And he made it to Sandy Key Light off of uh, Key West until finally their motors gave out and uh, some fishermen found him there and towed him into, into Key West. It's amazing how many fishermen we have uh, in this area, South Florida. Uh, fly fishermen that had families that got out of there in 59 right originally with uh with chico fernandez right. uh joe rodriguez right. uh who fishes all the tournaments up right. there um we're talking about fishing tournaments um do you remember your dad teaching you how to fish around here you know what absolutely he he would carry me we would go out in front of nixon's house in Miami. Right. And we would fish for trout with popping corks. Wow. And I remember that vividly. And the, we would drift right out on those grass flats right there, catch big old giant trout, and I loved that to death. And and then from that point on, he would go everywhere. We'd go to Flamingo. We would go to Elliott Key. He'd take me everywhere. We'd go to Bimini, you know, on a 20-foot sea craft with the family, and we would marlin fish. I mean... You name it. He did it. He did it. And he did it in Cuba also. He did it in Cuba. He had a, a Cubavich, which is a knockoff from a Rivovich. What happened is the Americans came down. <laughs> the Americans came down to fish for white marlin. And um, the Cubans one night took one of the boats, put it on dry dock, took the dimensions on it, and they built a Cubavich. There's still some around today. So he had a 34 Kubovich that he would white marlin fish out of. That's what he loved. That was huh. his passion with light tackle, you know, right. 20, 12 pound, 20 spinning rod. Um, so he did a lot of that, a lot of that. So your DNA comes from a very deep fishing Buddy, background. DNA is heavy. My sisters all fish hard. My kid fishes. I mean, it's, it's in the blood. Did your father ever speak about Hemingway and his relationship with fishing in a Cuba? A little bit. Um, Hemingway kept his boat close to dad's boat at the Biltmore. I think the name of it was the Marina, but I, he, he didn't really, uh, elaborate too much on that, right. but he knew him. He would see him there. Um, but I don't think he ever got to fish with him or anything like right. that. Have you ever been back and fished Cuba? I went in 1996. Yep. I took a boat over from Marathon from here 
a 46-foot Taurus, me and another guy. And we went there, but we didn't fish. We went there for a couple of weeks just to party. cruise around and party. And Hang it was out. a wonderful place. It's a, you know, we were there, Nikki and I were there uh, a while back, and I couldn't believe how how it is it's frozen in time oh yeah all the infrastructure and the cars right it's terrible to see what communism and and castro has done it's yeah. just halted growth yeah halted growth but the one good thing it did and i hate saying it because my dad would probably kill me is that you know the reefs a lot of the reefs uh especially on the south coast I've held up because they haven't been exposed to a lot of things that that they might have if it if it had blown out of proportion. Sure, sure. you know. But I find it very um, compelling to to understand what BTT has done in Cuba, where they've stopped the netting for the bonefish. Right. right. And you know they're speaking now that we're getting a lot of the larva from right. the bonefish in Cuba, where before the Cubans used to eat bonefish. Right. Is that true? Well, from what I understand, I mean, from, from what they say, it is. Yeah, from what I understand, that is true. Mm -hmm. um, I think the bigger problem there, though, is this wasn't that they were eating it. I think the Russians were there uh, at a high scale getting them from the Cubans to net. They were netting them up and using them for some kind of fertilizer or something. So they're exporting all the fish. Yeah, so that's what I really think hurt the bonefish the most, mm -hmm. even though they a lot of netting did does occur there i don't know if it still does or not but i think that they've stopped all the netting and that's why hypothetically we're seeing a Some resurgence bonefish. in bonefish especially yeah. in key west right what kind of bonefishing have you seen around here well i mean obviously it dropped off yeah are you seeing it come back at all it's come back andy but it's come back differently um fish are deeper at least in the areas that i fish around the contents and west and a little east. Um, they like the higher tides. They don't tail. Do they get up on the flats on a higher tide? Yeah, they get up on the flats. And mud? They mud? They mud a little bit. Some places they mud, but, you know, primarily they're around the, the smaller mangroves on harder bottom. Mm -hmm. I've noticed they're on harder bottoms instead of grass bottoms, even though down in Key West, that's all grass, and, and there's a lot of bonefish down there. But they definitely don't tail the way they used to. Um, you got to fish for them differently. Right. Deep. You it's know, harder. You, it's just harder. Yeah. It's harder. It's not, it's not like it was before. Uh, I, I got to go back and talk about your dad because yeah. Nikki and I used to fish out there, you know, in the green holes of right. jack tar and bad right. weather, and right. your dad would come right down the line. Right. And his ponga throws anchor right in front of us. Right. You know, it was just awesome. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of people would yell at him. It was like he was deaf. Right. He knew where he was going to go. And he would come in all the time and he'd say, man, I don't know why they're yelling at me. I go, dad, <laughs> you're probably, those guys are out there way before you. You get out there, throw the anchor 50 yards in front of them and think it's okay. And he's <laughs> like, well, damn, I'm out there every day too. And. I think I'm far enough from them, but I'm like, Dad, if you're getting yelled at, you're doing something wrong. You know what I mean? <laughs> I think that's what's happening to me. <laughs> right. right. Uh, does he catch any fish? He does off the dock now, you know. He, ca he, he catches tarpon oh, yeah, with his yeah, when we're gutting fish out here in the tarpon, getting the canal, he's out there hooking fish. It's like Every a, night. It's, 95 years old? Oh, oh, my God. 95, barefooted, no shirt. Pair of shorts. Oh, that's awesome. Good, you know, for, good for him. So it's good. It's well, good. you know, I want to get back to to you and your reputation, okay. you know, in the fly fishing world. Yeah. Um, a lot of the, our audience are, you know, they're around the world. Um, and they really focus in a lot of times, I think, on what we're doing in fly fishing down here in the Keys. Mm -hmm. And Albert Ponzola is a great, great name in fly fishing. Mm -hmm. you, know, you have got such great respect from everybody as being one of the greatest anglers, uh, commercial fishermen, mm -hmm. possibly very few people know about the ecosystem down here as far as the biomass of fish than you. Um, so it's May 10th, no, it's the 11th, Right. peak of tarpon season. Right. What are you seeing out there right now? 
And we'll talk about the biomass here in a little bit too, but I want to hear about your daily yeah. uh, exposure well, to tarpon. <clears throat> well, what I'm seeing now is, you know, we've already been a full 30 days of tarpon, okay, because they started April 1st. Usually I would never, you know, we would start fishing the ocean 15th, 18th, sometimes okay. even later. 20th of April. So they've come late. I mean, they've come early. Okay. So we've already got 40 days of fishing them. It's already. A, almost a full season. It's almost a full season. So I'm getting a little nervous as to what my June is going to look like. Okay. So that's, that's what I'm nervous about. Now, as far as the fish go, there's been a fair number of tarpon on the ocean side from what I see. Um, Nothing less or nothing more than, I would say it's been better this year than last year, mm -hmm. which I haven't been able to say for a long time. Okay. Right. The weather's been pretty good. I think, you know, we've had some days with some West wind, which is poison. Um, they don't bite. They, they don't they bite. They swim, but they, they don't bite. They swim they, and they don't bite and you can't get on them because they're going east and west and you try to pull to get a good angle. You can't get a good angle. You get one shot and they're gone, at least in the areas that we fish. Why does right. a west wind affect these fish like that? The hell of I know. I don't know, Andy. I but really it's consistently don't. a west wind oh, makes yeah. these if fish act like that. If it's out of the west and there's- Stay home four. and rest. The offshore guys, if it's out of the west, stay home and rest. It right? sucks, man. It sucks. And <laughs> you can't, you don't catch anything. What I mean, about the north wind? North wind is just as bad because it rolls you over the top of the fish. If you're pulling for fish- a north wind will take you over the fish. So you get one shot and the wind takes you over them and you're done. If you're staked out, you could fish them. But we, I, usually I pull and you only get one throw before the wind throws you over the fish and you're done. And you're done. So anything from that quadrant, when it goes southwest to north, I'm screwed. Mm -hmm. Period. End of story. If it's five days of it, I know five days going to be bad mm -hmm. a lot of people have been trying to get you to fish the tournaments it uh, just hasn't played out for me Andy. That's, in what way they haven't offered you enough money yet no no What's it gonna just make that work i, I got uh, i got no. a gun, young gun right there <laughs> it just you know at this point it doesn't mean that much to you obviously well to win a big tournament i don't have the same gas in my tank now than i did when i was 25 i 30, hear you you know and you Guys that are fishing that tournament are for real, okay? They don't play, right? okay? So I know I wouldn't have a chance because I just don't have that in me to go that extra yard that I got to go. If I got to run another 45 minutes, I wouldn't you, have thought about it, you know, when I was 25. Did I you ever think it. about fishing those tournaments when you were younger? You know what? I really didn't because I was too busy. Doing your thing. Yeah, doing my thing and trying to figure out the fishery. I mean, mm. it hasn't been easy. It's, right. it's difficult. I learn, I learn something every day. And for me, tarpon fishing has been at least ocean tarpon fishing has been one of the hardest things for me to learn because you gotta you gotta know back in the day when I started, you know, guys would tell me like Harry and 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 Steve and. And Dale and all those guys, they don't bite in the ocean. I mean, we all knew that. They didn't bite in the ocean. You changed okay? that game. Well, <laughs> at least where I fish, yeah. I mean, I, and I thought, holy shit, they don't bite. I mean, you see 2,500 tarpon in a day, you get, you might catch one if you're lucky. You know, and you're right in them. You're doing everything right. And you're thinking, what the hell's going on here? You know? So what's the key? So. Well, I mean, would you figure it out? It just—it was a progression of things, Andy. It was a progression getting to it, but you know, I learned early on not to strip the fly, like I was told I needed to strip it. You know, like everybody did it. You mm -hmm. know, strip, strip, strip. You know, the moment I figured out to slow things down a little bit, I started getting a little little success, and. Were you double hand stripping at the time or just Hell slowing no. everything down? I thought double I thought that double hand stripping was a bunch of malarkey. 
I thought, oh my God, somebody's going to lose that rod. This, this is stupid, you know? So I, it took me a while to go to two hands. Once I fit, you know, once, once I saw in my, with my own eyes that, Hey, this really works. You know, it really works. You don't make any mistakes because you can't and you keep that fly coming steady. There's no jumping. Mm -hmm. The fly's not jumping. And I mean, I know there's plenty of guys out there that fish and they still jump their flies and they catch the hell out of them. But in the area that I'm fishing, they don't like that. You jump that fly, they will run the other way. Mm -hmm. Period. One of the things that I noticed about jumping flies is Harry Spear, if I'd cast a little bit too far, lead him too far, he'd say sweep the fly into position. So you sweep that raw tip, and once you get in position, then you can start feeding the fish. Right. But I remember initially when I tried to get the fly in position, yeah. I'd strip it too aggressively, yeah. and, and they would jump out of their skins. Yeah. Um, but you're fishing mostly the worm? Well, at this point on the ocean, yeah. How about in April when there's no moon in tide? In April, well, if I'm on the ocean, well, it depends on where you're fishing, right? Once they move down in the neck of the woods where I fish around sunshine and that, I use primarily worm flies, okay? But early on, like in March and April, if I'm fishing up at Long Key or, or you know, somewhere up that way, I use either a muddler or something that floats, uh keeps up high on the water column but down here this time of year i primarily use a worm fly mm -hmm. you know it it just it works here's one of the things that i notice about the double hand strip i think that a lot of people around the world have an issue with two things they throw the fly get it in position they start stripping way too aggressively and right away you're pulling that fly out of that fish's face. Right. But the double hand strip too, uh, you could still do that with two hands really fast. But for the most part, you know, you're going to be a little bit more of a doodle as right. they call it now. Right. But also too, when the fish bites it, I used to yank that fly right out of their mouth with my right hand right. when I single hand stripping. Right. Now you can do that with two hands. But I'm not going to tell anybody how, how it's done because I don't want to put the voodoo in your head. Right, right. <laughs> but I've refined that for sure. Um, we were talking earlier about, you know, the biomass. Yeah. And I, Nikki and I fish, you know, a little bit closer to Key West. And I've always noticed that the fish come there a little bit later and leave a little bit earlier mm -hmm. than the fish in, in, in the upper Keys, right. Isla Mirada. Right. And the bridge bridges in Isla Mirada, they go out of one bridge, come in the next. So that's right. their zip code, right. long key and all that. Right. Um, but I've noticed, you know, over the years, a big decline in fish. Right. And we've spoken, and I know with Dustin Huff and good friends of yours, um, the biomass is not there. Right. Tell us what you've seen. Well... <clears throat> There's one particular area that we used to fish. It's, it's bank. It's out to the north of Big Pine. It's the furthest bank out. And that was the spot to go when the weather got warm in February because that's where the big migration of fish would come in. Big. Miles of tarpon. Thousands of fish. Thousands of fish. And they would come in there and they would spread out. They'd go all the way from bank, all the way to bank, and back into bank. And it, it, was, it was a mass, massive amount of fish. It fed that whole area in there, okay? And around the time of the freeze, around the oil spill, which was 2010, maybe, maybe a year or two before that, those fish disappeared. Okay, you didn't see them anymore. They, there was no more free jumping. You didn't see those big daisy chaining schools out there or them laying out there. Now, I got to be honest, there used to be a lot of mullet out there. The mullet muds used to be all over, and they would lay in that mullet mud. You just pull in the mud, and they'd be laying up, and you'd cast to them and catch them that way. Those mullet are gone, okay, out of that particular area. Out of that area, those mullet are gone. 
the tarpon are gone. You've always said, I mean, in the fishing world, they've always said you find the bait, you're going to find the fish. Yep, that's true. Uh, and but What happened to the mullet? I don't know. I don't know what happened to the mullet, but they're not out there anymore. You don't see any more muds out there. But what's kind of funny is those fish, I think the way it works is that big old biomass went from sideboard bank all the way to the Marquesas, okay? And, and it fed that whole area. All those channels would fill up at the same time. Sawyer, you know, Harbor Key, Jack Channel, uh, Pearl Basin, all that used to fill in at the same time. So right. it was all, you know, it wasn't like it was one body of fish that would move from here to there to the other place. No, it was a mass of fish that would come in out of the Gulf and would lay in these spots and we would follow them all the way in. I would follow them all the way to the innards, to all those little keys inside, and they would go right to the bridge. They'd go to Moser's Channel or Knight's Key Channel or Honda Channel, and that's where they would get, and they would mix with the other tarpon that were coming from the other direction. Now what you got is just residential fish that when the weather gets good, they show up, and there's... You go to one spot and there's 30. Go to another spot, there's 15. You go to another spot, you might see 50, okay? But that's what you see. You don't see any more free jumpers. You don't see any big schools. You don't see any of that. So I don't know where they went. Mm -hmm. And the commercial fishermen that are out in the Gulf, they haven't seen. I mean, they've seen some dead tarpon. but What's that from, you think? Well, who knows, red tides or whatever. But it's right. not like they're coming back going. And they're not even seeing thousands of no, fish dead. They see, if they see two, it's a lot or five. So I haven't heard from any one person mm-hmm. say, hey, we got a big fish kill. We got a problem with tarpon are all dead. I haven't seen that. I haven't heard that. Right. So where they could have gone, I don't know. But I could tell you for a fact they're gone. And that's what fed the whole lower keys, middle keys, all that, all those keys down that way, they're history. Interesting. So, you know, so what we got now is just resident fish. We're scab fishing, you know what You're I right. mean? And and what happens is if too many boats are fishing thirty fish every day you're not gonna do very good. Right. You know? Right. So I mean that's where we're at. Mm-hmm. Pappas Pilar is a spirit that embodies adventure. Named after the late great Ernest Hemingway and his boat, the Pilar, the name says it all. This ultra premium blended rum is hand selected from around the Caribbean and blended by master blender, Ron Call. After a long day on the water, when the sun is descending the sky, end on a good note with Pilar by your side. Go support them at pappaspilar.com or a liquor store near you. Duck Camp makes outdoor goods so you can outdoor good. From the shallow water flats to the mallard-filled marshes, Duck Camp is there to make you feel comfortable and enhance the quality of your time in the elements. Not only do they make some of the best outdoor apparel on the market, but they support many of the organizations near and dear, fighting for a resource in the natural world. Check them out at duckcamp.com and tell them we sent you. I used to fee- see them, you know, up by Ponce, yeah. you know, come in, yeah. go offshore. Yeah. Um, it's amazing days out there. You know, you jump hook 35 oh, and catch right. 16. Right. I miss those days. Well, what I could tell you is this winter was really good up there. You know, not at Ponce, but up in that area, in the Cape area. I thought right. there was a lot of tarpon around. They just didn't come all the way down. I don't, I don't know where they went, but all I know is March and April was very good. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know those fish from Big Pine and the Marquesas are missing, and I'm, you know, I'm worried about that. You know? Right. Well, you have seen a lot more um, than most people because you're also a commercial fisherman. Right. Tell me about uh, that life uh, in the Gulf, commercial fishing. Well, it, it goes way back. You know, to your family, yeah. Like when I was 
16, 17, 18, we always... Who is we? Who taught well, you? Well, it would be me and a couple of my buddies, but we, you know, I had, uh, we would catch lobsters and sell them. And we did a lot of snapper fishing out here at Sombrero Light. We do that all summer and, and do very good. I mean, enough to make enough money that you didn't have to have a job, you know, in the wintertime, right. you know, when you were in school. So, I mean, it started like that, and I've always kept a little bit of that going. I mean, it's not hardcore, 100% commercial, but it's it's more of a, you know, when we're not charter fishing, we're making money somehow, whether we're selling bait or right. we're selling kingfish <laughs> or we're selling lobster or snapper we're doing it you're you know, a fisherman cause, yeah because it's inside expensive. and out it's expensive to live here man and you yeah. gotta you know you really you got it you got to make it happen if you're not you know if you're not right. fishing do you fish the ocean much offshore um i don't much anymore my son does all the time he's out there seven days a week but you go into the gulf i go into the gulf how, I do, how far out do you go we go about 80 miles 80 90 miles king fishing we go up towards Everglades city in December and January. And we fish some in the Tortugas for snapper and grouper. How do you find these spots? Well, word of mouth, word of mouth. Yeah. You, you're friends with a lot of commercial guys, right. you know, that, that are out there doing it. And, you know, everybody talks, Hey, they're in this area, they're in that area and they're big schools, you know, they're giant schools and airplane flies also uh, when they're netting them. So word gets around where they're at. Right. And we get in on the action and, you know. Tell, tell me about a day of king, king fishing. Buddy, a day <laughs> of king fishing. <laughs> you will sleep three days for every one day of king fishing you do. It's that hard on you, okay? You're dropping down jigs and these fish will kick your ass. King mackerel is a hard fighting fish. And how far are you dry, in how deep a water? We're in 50 foot. 50 feet. We're in 50 foot. But the hardest part of king fishing when you get to the dock, oh, you gotta clean and them. you got fourteen hundred pounds or twelve hundred fifty pounds of kingfish that you got to put in trash cans. Oh my lord! To put in the truck to send up to Miami. <laughs> so you don't have anybody, yeah. you don't so have anybody the, waiting so with sharp dead, knives. No man, no. <laughs> I mean, it, it. The the easiest part of kingfishing is fishing for them. It's when you get back to the dock and you're catching one hundred twenty kingfish a day. One hundred twenty kingfish. Try three three that. guys. Three guys. And you got to unload all that. It's not a lot of fun, buddy. That's where, <laughs> that's where, you know, you think about it and you go, damn, that's, you know, you really got to be, you got to be in it. Uh, otherwise you wouldn't be doing it. You know, that's why you don't want to fish tarpon tournaments. You're <laughs> 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 tired king, king fishing. You know? So what, um, how old are you now? I am 61. Do you fish any new people? Every I year? don't. I don't. What's your clientele look like? Most of them are... Neil Rogers, the great photographer. Yeah, they're about 75. You know, Neil. I fish Neil. You have 75 clients you fish with. No, 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 no. No, no. They're 75 years old or more. Oh. You know what I'm saying? They're my age. Yeah, I mean, they're getting there. And, and uh, that's nice because they don't want to fish so long. Yeah, and hard. That, that's true. <laughs> that's true. I get in a little earlier than I did before. Um, but I don't have that many clients. I'd say I have maybe 15 or so, you know, that keep me busy enough to to make a living. And when's it. your season start and begin? First of April? February for 1st. I start fishing February 1st. I fish till July 1st. For tarpon. Pretty much for tarpon, whatever's around right. at the time. Because <clears throat> I see these photographs of uh, the permit that, that you've caught with Neil Rogers. Yeah, well, we've done a lot of good fishing together. How Neil often? So tell me about your permit fishing around here. Well, the permit fishing, we do most of it out in Big I I, I fish a lot around Big Pine. and mm -hmm. So, um, you know, it's 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 been kind of weak the last couple of years, to be honest with you. Um for what reason, I really don't know. But, um, you know, it just hasn't been as good as it. Do you like permit fishing? Not really. <laughs> <laughs> you like to be rewarded. Give me a crab at the end. And even with the crab, they're starting to piss me off because they don't want to eat a crab sometimes, you know? Oh, that is hilarious. So, yeah, I would say permit is my least, uh, you know, funnest fish to go after. Right. I love to tarpon fish. And I love to bone fish. I just... 
I don't like the way I have to fish for them anymore. It's not, you know, I can't go after tailors anymore, uh, you know. But you can still get them. At I least. can still get them, but, yeah. you know, it's not the same. Yeah. You know? um, what do you think about uh, the dynamics of the number of guides around the lower keys? How have you been able to keep your fishery to yourself? Because I know where you fish, and you fish alone. Well, and you have Rob. Okay. I, I think Scott Collins a little bit. Yeah, you and Scott Scotty. and Rich. There's some more boats that are that are fishing around. But I, I got to start out by saying that, that at one time, Andy, and I might have some video of it. There used to be 15 boats on top of us fishing. There, okay, every day. Do you start packing? It wasn't. It wasn't good. Just start showing. And, and let me tell you, there was a lot of guys with electric motors, and you know, I had to go through all that. You know. Um, but tell me the process. How did you? Well, I mean, the way, it, you know, in the heyday of the thing, you know, big schools would be coming all over the place, and people would see them, you know, and they'd go out there and, and try to catch them, you know. But they're not easy to catch. Mm -hmm. And we didn't know how to catch them. Nobody knew how to catch them. We get lucky every now and again to catch them. So the 15 boats that used to be out there, they'd get tired of not catching. Mm -hmm. And one by one, go somewhere else where they could catch them. You know? And the guys that stayed behind sucking it up, dying a horrible, miserable death finally got a little nudge on it and started figuring it out a little bit you know and i think over time just people just quit going you know and we've been able to be left alone pretty much uh because of that you know and it's a whole different deal andy i mean it's you can't stake up there's no shooting it's hard yeah it's harder you don't you sit for endless amount of hours um it's not like you're getting shots and you got to be paying attention all the time it's not like up in island rod on the beach at least you're getting shots and you got to be ready and Mm -hmm. and you're involved you know so you gotta you gotta train your people up that way too you got so that comes with having the right people on the so boat that have, are willing to fish So that when way. you have 75-year-old guys, you got to wake they're them up asleep, from a nap. They're dude. They're asleep. <laughs> Either they're asleep or I'm asleep, you know? So <laughs> um, so that's how much, that's pretty much the progression of things. Right. And, you know, there's a lot of skiffs now that are fishing to the west, which, you know, like down in the Sunshine area, which yeah, I fish I a lot. It. Right. And there's a lot of guys fishing there now. I see that. You know? It's scary. Yeah. Well, I wrote an article last year for Till Magazine, um, and I can't remember the title. I should, but I have dementia. Um, but it was basically how you guys started, you know, you guys invented and refined the worm and the worm fishing and the fuchsia worm. Well, I can't take credit for that. But you were part of fly. it. I was part. Well, I could tell you for sure I was part of it. Right. Okay. I, but I got that fly from... Neil Light, okay? That guy threw it in my boat. He gave me two of them. But he didn't tell me anything. But he wasn't just, he a steelhead fisherman, fisherman from yes. California? He tied up this fly, this worm fly, with yeah. a fuchsia rabbit. He threw it in your boat or something, right? Yep, yep. We're fishing off of Bay of Honda Beach, and he came over to me and said, Albert, try this. Guy's a great fisherman, Neil. Did he already know the effect of that fuchsia fly? I don't think so. I think he was catching them at the bridge, you know, worm fishing or something, mm-hmm. but I don't think he realized how good, I, I know later on he did because we would talk mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, that opened up the game right there from that point. It on. changed tarpon fishing it changed for the, the rest tarpon of time. Fishing. From that point on, it was okay. It wasn't a matter of, can I get them to bite? You knew you were going to get them to bite. You just had to make the right cast. Right. You could never do that before. No. I, forget about it. It was a game changer right now. So right. tell me about the progression of once that worm got into your hands and how did it get to Delu okay. and Scott Collins' hands? And then they started winning all the tournaments. Right. They won all three in the same right. year right. with the worm fly, right. double hand stripping. Yep. So when Neil gives me that, that fly, 
it was, I want to say it was late May. It was during the worms. And we were using a fly muddler that Randy Brown gave me. Okay. He, he taught, he showed me this, this fly. Just it was like the a mouse trout. fly. Oh, it was mouse a mouse fly. fly. Okay. And he showed me how to tie it. Did it have a tail? It, no, it didn't have a <laughs> it's tail. Just a lot of deer no, hair? It did, deer hair and some feathers. But that's what we were using. On the surface, floating. Pretty much. It sank a little bit, but it suspended. So it would stay in that window for a long time. The traditional flies sink. So you got to be pulling them all the time to stay, you know, where the fish are. Right. You know, so that. It, so if you didn't have a fly, it would stay with the fish in that level. It, it would be in the, the water zone column. all the time. Yeah. And we did good with that muddler. That was a great fly that Randy gave me. But when Neil gave me that fly and I tied it on and I see a pack coming and I was fishing with Billy Lathrop. He, he makes a cast. It wasn't that great. Shitty, shitty cast. And I was telling him, pick it up, make another cast. And when he starts pulling, two fish just break out and come after this fly and eat it, eats it. And we got this fish on, I go, holy shit, okay. But I I didn't know at that time that it was going to be that good. I mean, I just thought, okay, this is good. This this fly's going to work, you know. It had a small hook. He had an Aki hook on there, and it was too small. I knew we were going to lose the fish, and we did. And we lost the fly, I think, but I had one more. And I didn't let Billy touch that fly. <laughs> I got home that night. And I think I had to go down to Neil's and get some some rabbit strip because I didn't have the right color. Okay, that fuchsia color. I don't remember. But I, I got my hands on some. And I tied up 24 of them. Put them in a Ziploc bag. And I went back out the next day. Guess how many I had left. When I came back in that next day, zero. You lost all the flies. Yep. So that's, to me, that was like, holy shit. And that took years, years and years and years because we've been fishing that ocean forever and could never, ever. Crack the code. Crack the code, ever. You know, kind of like permit fishing. You think you got it. You know, you got a fly that works okay, but... You really don't have something that really, you know, okay, I'm going to kick some ass with this thing. Right. You know, and that thing was unbelievable. So then how did that fly get to Collins and and, uh, Dave DeLue? You know, I gave the fly to a good friend of mine, Carl Wagner. Yeah, it's a good story. I told Carl, I go, Carl, do not give this fly to anybody. I said, keep it to yourself. Take it but keep it to yourself. So he takes it and he calls me up the next day. Holy shit. We're killing. I keep calling me. We're killing him. I go, okay, good. Keep everything Don't to tell yourself. Him. Don't we'll tell be, anybody. We'll be good. Let's try to keep this. <laughs> well, you know, the rest is history, Andy. I mean, from there, I, I well, don't know well, the I, specifics but, but, of it. But what I heard mm-hmm. was that Carl had some other buddies that could no longer fish with him because he double booked or something, and right. they fished with Scott Collins. That is right. Leonard Baum was yes. the guy's name. Yes, and um, and they had one of these flies. They gave it to Scott Collins. That's correct. And Scott Collins started whacking all these fish, and Wagner called Collins and saying, what fly are you using, something like that. Right. And he said something. And I think Carl said, fuck you. <laughs> You're right. That's how it went. That's how and it went. And they, then they fished the uh, the tournaments. He and uh, Dave DeLue, double hand strip in the worm. They won all three tournaments that right. year. Right. Then right away, the rest of the tarpon tournament scene, all the guys, all the anglers, double hand strip in the worm. Right. And it's been that way since, since then. Right. Very interesting. Yep. Why was it about the fuchsia that made these fish react like they did? And they and that fly no longer works as yeah, well. Yeah, you're right. It no longer works. I mean, uh, I mean, you could catch fish here and there with it. Right. Um, but, you know, Andy, I, I think a lot of it had to do also with the way we were fishing them, 
too. It wasn't just the fly. Right. It was, you know, getting it in Putting the right, it in the right place spot, and moving it. And moving it right. Yes. So it was a lot to it. it right, it, There's sure. a lot to it other than the fly. But, you know, that fly just, it looked good in the water, man. Mm-hmm. It looked good in the water. And uh, they ate the shit out of it. <laughs> I mean, big time. Yeah. You know? So where do we go from here? I don't know. I mean, I don't know how we better that fly. I don't you, know how. <clears throat> if you, you if you fish anything else, you're going to go backwards. You're going to go backwards. Right. You know, so I kind of worry. I go, well, what, what are we going to tie next? I mean, where do we go from here? Well, how do you feel about these fish are so old? Yeah. They see this every year. Yeah. These fish migrate here mm-hmm. every year. Yeah. We've educated these fish. You've yeah. got to be technically almost perfect to catch fish now. Absolutely. I hate to say that because I don't want people to get discouraged. No. But the game has changed in that you've got to cast a certain way. You've got to use you know clear tips, long leaders. Right. Do you use an all-clear fly line? All clear. And I'm even carrying in my boat a nine-weight. So when it gets slick calm and I can't get near them, I use a nine-weight all-clear line, long leader. And even with that, even with that, it's not easy. So, you know. It's very interesting how, you know, that wa- that line landing on the water, um, they, they feel that displacement. Yeah. Um, have you ever tried the ghost tip where only you have nine feet of yeah. a clear tip and yeah. a 15-foot leader? Yep. Airflow but, made, made one that we used to use, but the line would fall apart. It was a great line. It was a colored line, but with a... With a clear, clear tip, tip on the I end. tell you what, that new Cortland is yep. unbelievable. They changed the shooting head on it to right. connect to the, the clear tip. The old line worked, but it cast. It was really difficult to cast, but the new line is incredible. Right. Um, you might want to try that. Well, I have those. Oh, That's what I'm using You're now. You're using the new one? That's what I'm using now. The yeah. brand new one. The only thing I find that I don't like about it is it tangles a little bit. Even if you keep it clean, it's a little problematic that way. Mm-hmm. But it's a great line. That's all I use. You know, so you use the Corlin all clear, all the liquid series. I think it's called liquid crystal series. Yeah, crystal clear. Yeah. So you don't use that clear tip then? I don't use the clear tip. Maybe that's my problem. My eyes have gone. (laughs) I can't hear. I can't see. If I use the all clear fly, I don't see anything. I throw it out and everything's gone. Well, the thing is, it's a pain in the ass. You can't see where your fly lands, right? I mean, he can fish it. Yeah. He's awesome. He's young. I mean, I have a hard time. I gotta look. When the guy's cast, and I'm always looking to see the fly land. Where land. And then I'm like, okay, you're good. You know, but yeah, that's the problem with that clear line. You can't see where the hell it lands. Not everybody can fish that line. Yeah. Difficult. Yeah. Difficult, Andy. Difficult. Um, what would you like to add to this conversation? Well, the one thing I'd like to add, well, would be probably the, the, the shark problem at the bridges. And I've heard a lot of scuttlebutt about maybe restricting uh the guys fishing at the bridges because of predation okay and uh i don't think it's a good idea to restrict the fishermen from fishing at the bridge because of predation i think we need to go after the sharks you know at the bridge if you if you take one or two sharks and you you kill them at the, and I know it sounds terrible, okay, but it works. And if you hang them from the poles at the bridge, you'll have no predation problem. And therefore, the guys at the bridges that have been making their living there for a long, long time, and the young kids that are coming up that have to make their living at, that, sure. at the bridge could still make their living there without worrying about being thrown out because of predation. Right. Okay. We know there's a problem, okay? We know there's a predation are you, problem. Are you losing a lot of fish? I'm not losing any fish. To sharks? Fly fishing for sharks. But, Andy, we really don't know that because you fight a you fish for a 30 fish. minutes. Yeah. You let him go. You don't know if he's getting eaten three hours later at Bay of Honda or at right. Seven Mile or Long Key. We don't know. We right. got some impact in it, I guarantee you. Right. You know, so I've heard a lot of talk and it kind of, it's gotten me sideways a little bit. You what know? do you think about? I'm just throwing this out. Okay, it's not my 
suggestion to do this. Right. What do you think about the palola worms and how important it is for these tarpon to eat these worms during that, that, that worm tide? Well, it's, I mean, it's absolutely important for them to eat them. Well, if that being the case, have you ever thought maybe we should close these areas like, like Bahia Honda for that, for those four nights to all, to all fishermen? Andy, I don't know. I don't know if that would make a difference. Yeah. Uh, if I thought if I thought it would make a difference, I would say yes. I just I don't know if you really these fish are going to be fine. They're going to go offshore and spawn. They're going to be fine. Right. I I, I can't. I, I I'd hate to make a judgment like that because I don't know. By you know, here's it. here's the deal that I have that I think all fly fishermen mm -hmm. that really care should not fish over these fish at the bridges. Okay. You can find fish elsewhere. Right. But I just think personally, I'll, I'll never fish Bahia Honda during mm -hmm. a worm hatch, but you see these 60 some boats there right. running on top of these fish's heads, you know, right. everywhere. I right. just, I, it just is a, it's not a good feel, yeah. feel good thing to me. Right. And I understand that point of view, but on the other side of that, it's exciting for somebody to come from Montana or Idaho or New York or New Jersey that's never fished or, or might have limited amount Exposure. of time on the water yeah. and get exposed to something like that. Now, whether or not we could handle things better at that bridge, you know, not run the fish over, not do a lot of things that shouldn't be done there, you know, run over top of the schools with your motor on and stuff. I say just yeah, be those, conscious. Yeah, those things are... Are definitely not good you mm -hmm. know but to ban something like that you really got to think about what, what you know whether or not it's worth it to okay do that. let's go let's go here for a second okay we know that western dry rocks is where a lot of permits spawn yep and btt and all the the conservation organizations close that for four months okay do you think that's a good idea when you see these light tackle guys losing 50% of the fish they hook to sharks. Again, I go back to, we know what the problem is, is predation. If you go there to Western Dry Rocks and you take a couple of those sharks and you send them down to the bottom, I guarantee you're going to go 30 days without a problem. We know that. It works. And you wouldn't have taken a bunch of people that use that spot. Right. To make their livelihood pissed off, and now they got to go somewhere else and increase pressure in other places. So we really got to, you know, going forward, we got to think about things like that when we close areas out. You got to look at the overall, uh, you know, the end game. Mm -hmm. You know, and I don't think by closing Western Dry Rocks, um, I don't think it was a good thing. I think we could have taken care of that without having problems with predation. Well, the, the, only, the only way you're taking care of it is like what you just suggested. You got to nuke a couple of sharks. Right. Well, the, here you have guys, too, that I was talking to Mike Criscola, uh, who's on the board of the IGFA. Uh, we were speaking the other day, and all these guys offshore that are sail fishing are losing their, their fish to sharks, yeah. too. I mean, it's a worldwide problem. And it's everywhere, Andy. It's it not is. just here. It's in the Bahamas. We go to the Bahamas every summer. Right. You can't get a tuna to the boat, man. You cannot get a tuna to the boat. You find yellowfin tunas and you get on them. The sharks hear the motors and here, they here are they on you. They are on you. You get lucky to get a fish to the boat. Mm -hmm. And that's in the Bahamas, you know? Well. And when you're diving, you got to be watching your ass because they hear that spear go off. They're on you. Black tips are on you, you know? And it wasn't like that way back in the day. Right. You know, it's it's lately, and it's well, bad. Well, look, that's food for thought. Yeah. Uh, and it's food for, you know, everybody who has a chance to, you know, to voice um, um, Tallahassee, right. the, the FWC, and maybe somewhere down the road there, there might be a way where we're not going to eliminate very many sharks, but right. we can figure out how to live together. That would be great. Yeah. You know, yeah. that would be really great if we could do that. It'd be a home know? run. And and one more thing I'd like to add is 
we got too many guides fishing, too many fishing guides, I think. Um, you know, you go to one flat, when you leave, there's another guy rotates behind you, another guy comes after you. <clears throat> Before you know it, you got 10 guys fishing the same flat every day. Okay, every day from February to July. That's not good for the fishing. And 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 it's the same thing with the recreational guys. We got too many recreational guys using it also. So there's going to come a time where we're going to have to face that and come to some kind of program where, you know, you don't get that kind of impact. Mm -hmm. And, you know, nobody likes regulations. So I don't like them. How, okay. how do you foresee that coming to fruition well, and, and I think, making it work? Well, I, I think the way they should do it is, is, you know, if you do it for a living and you 50% of your income comes from fishing, you should be able to, to be part of the first group that could work. Grandfathered in somehow. Absolutely. If, if you were there and you could, and you do it for a living, you should be able to do it. Okay. But you got to show that you're, you know, by your, by your taxes. That's how the commercial guys did it. The commercial fishermen, they've gotten rid of all the bucket fishermen doing it that way. You know, you got to show a certain number of, of money, a certain amount of money that you sell every year. And, um, you know, over time it's gotten rid of all the bucket fishermen and all that's what's left. a, what's a bucket fisherman? Well, bucket fisherman is a guy that would come in with a bucket full of fish at the end of the day and sell it at the market mm -hmm. to cover his gas. Okay. Or just cover his cost. They did away with that, you know, because they just wanted fishermen, you know, commercial guys that were actually going to catch fish to sell fish, to put food on the table. That's what they want. That's the end game. They wanted those kind of people using the resource. Because it's a finite resource. It's but here's not, but here's a problem. Yeah, we all own the ocean. Absolutely, I own the ocean as much as you do, or anybody else, and and you as well as everybody else. Right. Um, this is this is your office. Right. I get that. Right. How do you tell somebody who's coming from wherever that wants to fish, and and, and all of a sudden you say, well, this is. You know, we're all commercial fishermen here. Well, this is how we make our living. You're, right. you're not allowed to fish. Well, that's not what we're saying. That's not how they did it. You're still allowed to go and catch whatever you want. You're just not allowed to sell your fish. Oh, okay. So you're okay, talking about so, the commercial entity. Yeah. So what I'm saying well, is... Well, what about the fun fly fishermen that have so many skips and, and now you're talking about the flats are overrun by, by well, guides? How do you, how do you saying, monitor that? No, no. What I'm saying is you could still do it, but there's going to come a time where we're going to have to get a number that's going to work for both sides. I mean, both sides have to be even. I can't, you can't tell a recreational guy he can't go out there if you can. Okay. But if there's only going to be two fishing guides that do it for a living on, you know, just on a spot, sure, there should be two recreational guys that could do it as well. I mean, a level playing field for right. both. I'm not saying do away with the rec guys. I'm saying, you know, we're going to have to reduce the numbers. We can't keep using the flats the way we're using them. There's right. too many people. No, I, I, to, I you know? completely agree. And, but, but as far as getting the recreational guys and getting them out of the way, no, I'm not saying that. I'm saying a level playing field, but less people. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if we could ever do that. Well, you know, I, you mean, know, I, I always try to relate it to, you know, the Western elk hunting where you have to draw a tag in order right. to hunt. Right. Mm -hmm. Maybe there's a lottery system where everybody has to apply to fish. I mean, I, I really I have no idea. Yeah, I don't know. That's so far out there, Andy. That I don't. I but don't I know. think that I think you're thinking in the right direction. Where that's one way to to monitor the pressure because these fish are not dying. They just don't want to be near the shoreline Absolutely. because of the pressure. Absolutely. I mean, you but, would. But also too, you have the jet skis in Key West and all the big, you know, all these other boats that are around. Right. Anyway, that's just food for thought. Absolutely. And I appreciate, yep. you know, all this stuff. Yep. Anything else? Nope. That's it. You the man. That's it. I really enjoyed it, Andy. You the man. Okay. You're still <laughs> sharp as a tack. <laughs> yeah, so no. if Nikki tells you you're not, that's bullshit. Okay. All right, Nikki. <laughs> Nikki's He's on sharp my side. as a tack, bro. He's okay. 
I still can't hear and I can't <laughs> okay. see and I can't <laughs> walk. <That's laughs> Other than that, I'm sure I'll take right. it. I love you, man. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you very much. much. Really appreciate right. it. Punzoa's fishing spectrum is vast with many interesting components. And it's rare to sit with someone that has such a great handle on what's going on in the ocean they fish. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to see more content or behind the scenes, please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. We'll see you again soon. Just a ride, just a ride.